North Boulevard. Welcome, those of you who are online in Zambia or Cambodia or wherever you happen to be, would you join me in wishing 244 birthdays for the United States of America? Happy birthday, USA. The oldest, the oldest democracy in the world right now. A government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And um, been a very, very good country for me. And um, so, happy birthday, America. And as we think about that, we think about generations, which will maybe in some way help us focus on the text today, Deuteronomy chapter 29. So, on January the 1st of 1863, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the Emancipation Proclamation. It was an executive order that abolished the practice of slavery in union-held territory in the southern states. But it was only an executive order, and most of us are aware of the fact that executive orders can be reversed in 10 minutes by the next executive office. And so, there was talk about legislation that would make slavery illegal in the U.S., but Lincoln knew better. He knew that the legislative process is a long and arduous process and that people would chip away at it and that once the southern states came back into the Union, the legislation may well be reversed. And so Abraham Lincoln came up with the very bold plan of a constitutional amendment, arguing that only by constitutional amendment could we guarantee that the United States of America would forever abolish the aberrant practice of slavery. But he required two-thirds votes in both the House and the Senate. By early 1864, the Senate had passed the 13th Amendment, but he was two votes short in the House. After the 64 election, in which he defeated George McClellan, Lincoln felt he finally had enough clout to push the 13th Amendment. By January of 1865, he was still two votes short. Several years after he died, a group of individuals got together and wrote down their memories of Abraham Lincoln. One of them recorded what happened in the meeting just before the vote, which was held on January 31st of 1865. They said Lincoln called together several legislators and several members of his cabinet, and he said to them, I need this amendment. Whether you know it or not, this amendment is necessary to forever stop the practice of slavery. And one of them said that he said these words. I want to read them to you because this is one reason why we admire Lincoln. Lincoln looked at those who were telling him, just do legislation or executive order and leave the Constitution alone. He said, the abolition of slavery by constitutional provision settles the fate for all time, not only of the millions now in bondage, and by the way, here's the sentence I want you to remember, but of unborn millions yet to come a measure of such importance that those two votes must be procured. I'll leave it to you to determine how it shall be done. But remember, I am president of the United States of America clothed in immense power, and you will procure those votes. 
One reason why we think of Abraham Lincoln as one of the greatest leaders in all of history is because he was able to see that the decisions they were making that year would have an impact on generations yet unborn. That's what a good leader sees. A good leader understands the implications of every action that he or she takes and every decision that they make. But you know what? That's also the indication of a good Christian. A good Christian understands that everything I do, every decision I make, has eternal consequences. The decisions you make today as a follower of Jesus, they have consequences for your children, your grandchildren, yes, even if you don't have any, your great-grandchildren, and generations to come. And so, four score and seven years before that, give or take, when the U.S. Constitution was being ratified, it was 1787, so the nation declared independence in 1776. The Constitution was ratified uh, a full 11 years later. It's said that Benjamin Franklin, who was there in Philadelphia in Independence Hall, working out the sausage of making a Constitution, which must have been something of a miserable um, and, and hot thing to do, was walking out immediately after the Constitution had been ratified, was walking out of Independence Hall. A crowd was waiting to hear what kind of government we're going to have as a people. A woman shouted out to Ben Franklin, so what will it be, a monarchy or a republic? Franklin's, by the way, his response characteristically cool and maybe echoing down to the uh, halls of history. A republic, if you can keep it. What he suggests is this. Every decision we make, every action we take, has eternal consequences. To use Lincoln's phrase, on generations yet unborn. And this is why God calls us into a covenant. You see, many of us grew up with the belief that I'm a member of the church. And that's fine. I'm good with that. Unless you think that you're nothing but a member of the church. Because in the Bible, we are not told that we merely go to church. It's not just a matter of checking off a list or punching a card or saying, I belong to this church. And if they start doing things I don't like, then I'll go and belong to that church. In the Bible, we are taught that we are in a covenant relationship with God. That's like a contract, only stronger than a contract. For in a contract, we sign a deal where we say, in order to receive this, we will do that. In a covenant, we have at least a contract, but it's more. A covenant is always personal. You can have a mortgage contract and never know the name of your banker. In fact, most likely, if you got a mortgage with a bank, they've already sold it six different times. You don't even know who has it now. You just write a check and send it in. A covenant is a very personal relationship in which we not only say we'll do these things, but in which we swear loyalty to the person with whom we have a covenant. A covenant is like a marriage. It's not just a contract. It's an oath of loyalty that we are now in this together. And so God strikes a covenant with the people of Israel. And Deuteronomy 29 is all about that. And the reason God strikes a covenant is because with God, it's always personal. 
God is not a remote watchmaker who just sits somewhere off into a cloud, having wound the universe and now watches it unwind. God is personally involved. Everything we do matters to God. And it not only matters to God, but everything we do has eternal consequences. That we get to be responsible not just for this generation. You're responsible not just for this generation. We get to be responsible for all future generations. So every decision you make, and every time you take a stand, you're shaping the future. The blessings that we receive or the curses for disobedience will pass down and rumble through the generations. And that's why Deuteronomy is an important chapter. I'm going to read it, and I'll read it very quickly. You may be surprised at how quickly we can get through it. But what I want you to see in the text is that God affirms the covenant that he wants to make with his people so that future generations will have the freedom that he offers. Deuteronomy 29, beginning at verse 1. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. That is, in addition to Sinai, 40 years later, Israel's on the east side of the Jordan getting ready to go to the west side and take the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord says, we're going to make our final deal now. This is our final covenant with one another. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, your eyes have seen all that the Lord did to, uh, in Egypt to Pharaoh, all his officials and to all of his land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. All, all Moses is doing is saying, hey, remember, the reason you want to be in this covenant is because all that God has done for you. But God has paved the way for you to have this kind of relationship. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. Yet the Lord says, during the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. All he's saying here is, your clothes lasted 40 years, your shoes lasted 40 years, you never had to eat bread because I gave you manna from heaven, you never had to worry about squeezing your own juice because I made sure that you had plenty of water coming out of a rock. I did all this because I want you to know you can depend on me. By the way, the truth is still true. Everything we have comes from our loving God. And so when he asks us to enter a covenant with him, he's already done his part. That's why he has a right to expect our loyalty. When you reach this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out to fight against us, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. So everybody's with me? We're a third of the way through the text. Moses is simply saying God is entering into a relationship, and he wants your loyalty. And now we get to the future generations. Verse 10. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God. It's just fascinating that what he says is he's got the whole church there. Moses has the whole church. There are times in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where Moses might only gather the elders. Or in a few cases, maybe just the men or the heads of the families. But not this time. 
He says, all of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, all the other men of Israel, together with the children, your wives, the foreigners living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm to you as his people that he may be your God as he promised you, as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So watch what's happening. Moses is saying, way back hundreds of years ago, God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 400 years later, now we are reaffirming this covenant right here, you and I, and you're about to see in the next few verses, and now we are going to hand it down to our children. That's not how he puts it. I'm making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord, but also with those who are not here today. That God is trusting the Israelites with all future generations. If we use biblical language, it might make you squirm a little bit. In your loins now are a thousand future generations. And the Lord says, I'm trusting you, not just with yourself and your generation. I'm trusting you to get this covenant down to all future generations. And so, brothers and sisters, we cannot be the link in the chain that broke. This covenant, this section of this uh, book of Deuteronomy, this is the sacred moment of Deuteronomy when they seal the deal. This is the I do of the wedding between God Almighty and the people of Israel. And God is making sure they understand just as he makes sure we understand. Guys, listen, we are responsible for future generations. The decisions you made this morning, the commitments you've made in your life, they will impact future generations until Jesus comes back, which is why it's so important that we are loyal to God ourselves. Verse 16, he goes on to talk about the children. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt, how we passed through the countries on our way here. You saw among them the detestable images and idols of wood and stone, silver, gold. Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns from the Lord your God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there's no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves thinking, I'll be safe even if I persist in going my way, they will be disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. And the Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will fall on them. The Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. The Lord will single them out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses, the covenant written in this book of the law. Your children who follow you in later generations. I just want you to see this. I'm going to pause for a minute. So I understand when you read a long text, it's hard to stick with it. It's hard for me too. Let me just make sure you understand what's happening. If the church in 21st century America is unfaithful, our grandchildren will look at the ruins of the Christian religion and say, what went wrong? We will invoke upon our own children the wrath of God if we're disloyal in this generation. How many links have to break before a chain is worthless? How many links have to break? One. Which is why he teaches us. In us is the future of all other generations. 
Your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see all the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no, no, uh, no vegetation growing in it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it's because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord the God, their ancestors. The covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them. Gods they did not know and gods he had not given them. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land. So they brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and his children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Now, I want to stop and I want to make an application. It's really very simple. It would be very easy for us to think that the Christian religion is an add-on to our otherwise relatively selfish lives. It would be easy for us to do that. I think especially in the South where we inherited a Christian religion. And part of that's good. So I don't mean to imply that it's a terrible thing. But in the South where we inherited kind of that thing where everybody goes to church, it would be easy to think, well, now, Monday through Saturday, that's, those are my days. That's when I do my thing. And then Sunday I go and I give a peace to God. Moses is challenging that. Moses is telling us, no, you entered into a covenant with God. He is going to give you all the blessings that he's promised. And in response, he's asking for all of you. He's asking for you to make every decision in his favor. For you to make every commitment in his favor. He's asking you to be loyal to him in everything you do. And actually, there is a lot at stake here. You know, when I was a kid which is increasingly becoming a long time ago. Everybody was a Christian. Everybody went to church. I mean, so it seemed. So when I was at uh, John Coleman Elementary School in Smyrna, everybody went to church. Like, I never once had to argue about the existence of God. I never, John Coleman, no, every, there was not a single atheist at John Coleman. The, nobody there uh, believed that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God. Everybody believed the Bible. Everybody did. The only question was, do you go to a church that has musical instruments or do you go to one that doesn't? And that was a fierce argument back then because we didn't have anything else to argue over. We all went to church. It was just a matter of which church you went to. Back then, I think you could afford just being a church member. Like the current was in some ways, not every way, but in some ways the current was flowing into the Christian religion. As I've said many times before, all the musics, you know, the music we were listening to is Bridge Over Troubled Water. You know, what's wrong? It's just a sweet song. Even Flipper was a Christian. Everything was Christian back then. <laughs> Everything was Christian. So all you had to do was just go to church, and you were kind of pretty much a good person. In case y'all haven't noticed, that's gone now. And now the world is becoming, the United States of America is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. So it's not uncommon in many of the schools in the U.S., not just public but private as well, 
for our children and our college students to be taught that everything that we preach here is wrong, and not just wrong, but evil. It's now becoming a hostile world, and what I'm suggesting is we have to rise up and fight for the future generations with the covenant of God. I mean, now's the time for us to say, I'm not going to be the chain, the link that is, that broke in the chain. Somebody gave us an awesome Christian faith. At West Campus, somebody in the year 2013 said, I am willing to give by the millions to see that campus start. It didn't just happen. It took blood, sweat, and tears for that thing to come around. At this campus, at the East Campus, in 1947, somebody said, I'm willing to pay blood and sweat and tears and hard-earned dollars to start a church on the other side of MTSU. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. That link in the chain held true, and they gave us what we have. We cannot be the link that broke. Now it's our turn to realize that we are handing our children, our descendants, some kind of legacy, and either it's going to be the covenant of God or it's going to be the curses of God. I'm saying this is our turn, guys. You see, we're in a covenant too. God made a covenant with Israel, but he always saw the day coming when that covenant would become obsolete. So the book of Deuteronomy as a covenant is obsolete. Odd, since I've been preaching it for 30 weeks. But as a covenant, it's obsolete. Even the covenant of Israel prophesied there would be a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, the Lord says a day is coming when I'm going to make a new covenant. By the way, the beauty of the new covenant, he says, I'll write my law. By the way, have you noticed we don't have 10 commandments on stone up here anywhere? Because the Lord says in the new covenant, we're not going to write it on a stone. We're going to write it on their hearts. So when we get to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 and 9, only quoting one, but if you look at Hebrews 8 and 9, you see all over the place, it's about the new covenant God has given us. Christ is the mediator now of a new covenant. We have a new covenant. Don't miss the fact that it's still a covenant. We are in a loyal covenant relationship with the Lord God Almighty. We're not just church attenders. We're the people of God in a covenanted relationship with God. He has done his part and now he's looking to see, will we do our part? Not only are we in this covenant, but our covenant was sealed not by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but by the blood of of none other than Jesus Christ, which is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, we are now ministers of a new covenant. And that's what I want to just make sure as I kind of get to my final focus, if I can say that. Remember that Christianity is a taught religion, not a caught religion. That means it's our turn. The previous generation has handed us a love for the Scriptures, and I do want to say that for half a second. I went to uh, undergraduate school to become a minister because of three things. I got a federal grant for which I will be eternally grateful. It, I mean, I, I don't know that I could have gone, a federal grant. They called it the B-E-O-G or B-E-O-E-G or something. Some of you all know back then. It wasn't a whole lot, but for me it was everything. I got a few small scholarships. The one that I liked the most was uh, a guy by the name of Gilbert Schaefer, who was a preacher in Smyrna, set up a scholarship for young ministry students. If I hadn't gotten that scholarship, I couldn't afford it. My dad couldn't afford it. 
And then seven churches of Christ in Rutherford County went together and sent me an average of $15 a month. And between those, I got to go to school. I look back on it and, I, and I'm, so, I'm still great. I can still tell you every church that gave me the money and I still feel like I am, am forever in their debt that they cared enough about me to do that, to see something in me when I don't know that I had anything to show. And the churches that raised me, they taught me to love Jesus and they taught me to love the Bible. They gave me that legacy and I will never be out of their debt. And now it's my turn. Guys, now it's our turn to make the kinds of decisions that give the power of the Word of God to the next generation, understanding that every decision you make has implications far beyond 2021. You make the decision to start making church that not that important. You know, you come to church when it's convenient. You don't come to church when it's not convenient. I just want to make sure you know you are cursing your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, future generations till Jesus comes back. You are cursing them because you are teaching them it doesn't matter. When you treat your relationships in ungodlike ways, You are not just bringing a curse on yourself. You're cursing future generations. What this world desperately needs to see is that the Christian message works, that it's true. We're looking at a generation that faces hostilities that many of us didn't face. So as I said, when I was growing up, the biggest challenge we had was piano or no piano. I'm not making light of it, but I'm saying that's a luxury if that were all you had to argue about. We're living in a world now where we're facing propaganda and disinformation. Y'all know now that we now have a world that is not only saying that the Christian message is wrong, but it's saying the Christian message is evil. And they are working round the clock to persuade you and your children not to believe what the Bible says about things like Christian freedom, abortion, sex and gender. In fact, you know and I know that the problem is so severe, the intimidation of the shaving, that I have to now do something I've never done in my life. And I just, I say this in gratitude to the elders at North Boulevard, previous and current. I have never measured my words at North Boulevard, never. In fact, I probably should have a few times. But if I think it's in the scriptures, I say it. Until lately, because I'm now aware that if I say what the Bible teaches on certain subjects, we'll get thrown off Facebook, and those of you who are online won't have access to us anymore. You don't think it'll happen? It's already happened. We've already had ministers at North Boulevard who have had pages of their Facebook removed for saying good news about people being converted from Jesus and changing their views on things like sexuality. So now I'm asking myself the question, do I preach it or do I not preach it? I'm not afraid to preach it, but I don't want to lose those of you, hundreds of you who are online. Suddenly we have to ask those kinds of questions because we're living in a world that wants to intimidate and shame Christians. Pardon me, we're also living in a world where we have microphones that just keep flying back and forth. It's our, it's our, see, it's all against me right now. Discrimination. You, you guys know this. There was a, there's a sociologist down in Texas who, has, uh, who, who interviewed tenured, uh, tenured college professors asking the question, all other things being equal, would you hire evangelical professors in your university? Everybody with me? 
assuming the same qualifications and everything else. 80% of them said they would not hire Bible-believing professors. 80% of them. That we're in a world now where even certain careers may suddenly become very difficult for Christians, not to mention possible lawsuits and fines and coercion. All I'm saying is the times are tough. Now, that's going to be terrible for the United States of America because when a country starts to marginalize righteousness, it begins to invite the judgment of God. But I will say it might be the best thing that ever happened to us lazy Christians to say, I'm going to have to fight for this thing now. And sometimes that's the best thing that happens to us. It's that resistance that gives us the strength that we need. So not good for the country, but maybe good for us. Because maybe this is a time when we can really make those decisions that we absolutely have to make the two critical decisions. I will stand up for Jesus even in an increasingly hostile culture, and I will not back down. And you need to say that, my friends. If you've been baptized, when you were baptized, you made a confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let me tell you, a confession is not a negotiation. It's not a dialogue. A confession is not a feeling. A confession is a statement of resolve. When you were baptized, you made a statement, drew a line in the sand, and you said, I am following Jesus Christ no matter what happens, and I will not back down. And now I'm calling on you to live up to that. I mean, that's what a covenant is. You made a deal with God. And if you don't live up to that deal, my goodness, you're condemning yourself and all future generations. Don't back down. Don't back down. There's a word for backing down in the Bible. It's called apostasy. That's the word for backing down in the Bible. It is a really serious offense. And the second thing that we really committed to because Jesus says this at the end of each of the four Gospels, go make disciples. And I just want to, I want to live on this for just half a second. Because sometimes you might think, well, disciple making, that's my church's strategy. No, that's all of our mission. Just don't get this wrong, guys. The gospel is the solution to every problem we have. I hope we get great policies out of Washington, D.C. I'm for good policies. I hope we get the right man or the right woman in office. If maybe we do, maybe we don't. Forget all that. But here's what we have. Let me tell you what we have. We don't have a policy. We don't have a governmental theory or an economic system. We've got one thing, but it's the right thing. We have the gospel. The gospel gets in people's hearts and it changes everything. The minute we let go of the one thing we have is the minute we begin to lose. We don't want the next generation to grow up without the gospel. Disciple making solves all the problems. You don't know what to do with your next door neighbor. They're living a lifestyle wildly different from you. You've got a new boss. They're going to do things that you're not sure about. What's the solution? The solution is always the same. The gospel, that's our solution. We bring the gospel wherever we go. That's the covenant in which we find ourselves. And now two quick stories and I'm done. A tale of two churches, we'll call it. Some of you have been to the Teeling Church just north of Dundee. A guy by the name of John, we would say glass. They pronounce it glass in Scotland. By the way, I've told, I have, a, I have like three or four roadshow sermons and I so when people call me and ask me to preach, I just have like the same three roadshow sermons. That's why you don't ever want to go hear me preach somewhere because you've heard me preach the same sermon like 40 times. And I've done this story so many times, I can't even remember if I've ever done it at North Boulevard, so I'm going to do a quick version of it. 
Uh, John Glasson, about the year 1719, decided he was a Presbyterian minister. He was, so Teeling, Scotland, just north of Dundee, two, two, two minutes north of Dundee, two miles. He decides that he's going to just become a New Testament Christian. See if this doesn't resonate with you. We're in 1719. So he says, I'm leaving the Presbyterian church, which, by the way, he lost his retirement. He had 15 kids, 15 kids. By the way, just a little touch to his life. All 15 of them died before he died. That's the kind of life this man lived. He lost all 15 kids, if you can imagine. But he decided, I'm going to be a New Testament Christian. As a New Testament Christian, he said, I'm going to, find, I'm going to stand only on the, on the New Testament. He decided, we're not going to have musical instruments because I don't see them in the New Testament. He decided, we're going to baptize only adults by immersion for remission of sins because that's what I read in the New Testament. He said, we're going to have the Lord's Supper every Sunday because that's what I read in the New Testament. He says, we're going to have elders in every church because that's what I read in the New Testament. Ringing any bells for anybody? This was the earliest restoration movement in the English-speaking language, and Alexander Campbell, who helped start the American Churches of Christ, learned from this guy, from his son-in-law to be specific. So here is this church in Teeling. This is his church in Dundee, Scotland. You see it was a, a glassite church. This is where he's buried uh, there in uh, Dundee, Scotland. So this guy says we're going to start a movement of people just being New Testament Christians, and he did. There were dozens of glassite churches, so they were called. For 250 years, this movement ran. Matter of fact, uh, uh, some of the very, very well-known Brits were members of this movement, including prime ministers and others. Guys, when I was at Freed Hartman in undergraduate school, they used to tell us about this movement. And I, I never had any clue that I would ever actually travel overseas, you know, when I was, from where I was from. It was, it was insane just to go to Kentucky. That was a far piece off. And pretty exotic, too. And so, I used to hear about Glassite churches. And then when I started going to Scotland, it's like, I got to go see this. So, we took a film crew. We were doing some filming in Edinburgh, where the biggest of the Glassite churches was. This was just a couple of years ago, maybe seven or eight. I don't remember how long. Six or seven. It's there on what's called Baroni Street. We go down, and I cannot find the building. I know what the building, I know the address, but I can't find it. And there was a Bobby, a police officer there, and I asked the question, I'm looking for this church. It's the Glossite Church of Scotland. He said, I don't, none here that I know of. Go to this historical society and ask them. They, they'll know where it is. I walk into the historical society, and I see this. And by the way, this was the photograph that I used to see when I was in undergraduate school in our textbooks on restoration history. And I asked the curator there, what's, what happened? I don't know if you can tell, but they're renovating it and making it a movie theater. And he said, well, this was the last of the Glassite churches. And the last member died in 1999. And as I was turning to leave, I looked over and leaning against the wall was this sign. This picture is literally in the textbooks that we used to study of the restoration movement in the UK. This is the last of an entire movement of people. Our ancestors. You know, the most heartbreaking thing about it to me was when the last guy died, there was not even a single person left to have a funeral service for a whole Christian movement. Nobody cared. I care. And it breaks my heart to think whatever they did right, you know what they did wrong? 
they did not think about the next generation. We, we were giving a legacy. We were given a legacy. Our spiritual ancestors all the way back to the apostles, the, you know, the church fathers, the mystics and the saints, the doctors of the church, the martyrs, those who gave their blood for Jesus, they have handed to us a priceless treasure, a covenant from God. They fought for it. They bled for it. They died for it. And now it's in our hands and we get to decide what happens to the next generation. We will make decisions today that will determine whether the next generation lives in covenant with the Lord God. And here's a second church. Y'all remember back in 2000, end of 12 and into 13, North Boulevard cast a vision that said, look, we can't control the future. But God's vision is so big that he says it's blood and fire and billows of smoke and we want to be part of that vision. So we announced what we call a New Day vision or a 2020 vision at the time. We changed it to New Day later. We, we want to be a racially diverse congregation. We want to be a congregation built on prayer. We want to be a congregation that broadcasts online and on television, a congregation where there's a school of Christian thought where people learn to think Christianly about everything, a congregation where disciple-making is the main thing, and a church that plants churches. None of us knew what we were doing, but we just said, if North Boulevard ceases to exist, if we get booted off Facebook, if we get booted off Vimeo, if Google won't even show us anymore in its searches, we want to be the kind of church that has produced so much fruit for Jesus, it won't matter. That's my vision. I'm telling you, if North Boulevard ceases to exist, but we have made disciples of hundreds and thousands of people, it won't matter. It was never about North Boulevard anyway. It was never about us. It was always only about the kingdom of God. And one of those things we said is, Lord, lead us to plant 60,000 churches. I just want you to know, we didn't know what we were talking about when we said that, but we just thought, why not? God's big. There's nothing God can't do. The missions committee tells me that we had planted about 122 churches when we made this announcement. Our missions committee had led us very successfully through. That's a lot of churches. But when we made the announcement again, we didn't know what we were doing. We just started praying, Lord, help us. And through this fantastic series of events where God brought us the people that we needed with visions that we couldn't really even imagine. I just want y'all to know that, uh, well, I want to share with you, I want to share with you a minute from the best elders meeting I've ever been to, including the one where they hired me. The best elders meeting I've ever been to was on August the 15th of 2019. So we had had people from New Generations, an organization that makes disciples and plants churches, Final Command Ministries, New Harvest Ministries, they had said, we'll partner with you. Let's plant churches all over the world. And we had a lot of problems to overcome. One of them was we'd never done that model before. It was a, very, it was a real challenge for us. We had not done that model before. It was a little frightening. We also knew that when you start planting churches very quickly, if you can even do it, they're going to be theologically immature. They just are. You know, a church that's three months old, where the oldest Christian there has been a Christian for eight months, is going to be underdeveloped theologically. We knew that the areas where we would be working would be areas of hostility and that we would probably have martyrs who are part of our movement. 
And I remember with the elders sitting down and over the course of some months, I'm not an elder, but I'm in the meetings, many of them, them deliberating over this. And the question just kept coming back. There are souls at stake here. There are souls at stake. And we're not going to miss what God has set before us. And so at 6.38 p.m., the 59th second, on August the 15th of 2019, unanimously the elders at North Boulevard said, we're all in. We got to do this. And I just want to show you something. So Glenn, who kind of oversees this for us, Glenn Robb, sent this out in April, of 20, uh, April 26th of this year, just to give us a, a sense. About 122 churches were planted before August the 15th of 2019. Since that time, we've now planted 355 churches, North Boulevard has. And let me tell you why that matters. Here's why that matters. The average life expectancy of an American church is 75 years. Have you thought about that? I mean, think, think about what happens. Like a city will shift its demographics and next thing you know, a church that used to be 1,000 is down to like 150. It happens all the time. Then COVID strikes and the church closes its doors forever. Don't think we're not immune to that or don't think we are immune to that. I mean, there's a good chance North Boulevard will cease to exist someday. For all we know, we'll get sued one day for our position on sex and gender and lose the building. We don't know what's going to happen. But here's what I know. I know we have had so many Christian babies around this world that if we cease to exist, it's not going to matter because the gospel is going forth from this place because you guys said we care about the next generation. That's what this text is about. This text is about a covenant God made with us where somebody gave us the gospel and now it's our turn to give it to the next generation. That's who we are. That's what we do. Every decision you make affects the next generation. Every decision the church makes affects the next generation. And so I'm laying the challenge out before you. Be faithful to Jesus in this generation. Not just for the millions of people who don't know Jesus now, but for the millions still unborn who are depending on us to keep the link in that eternal chain secure on our watch. So stand up for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus.